Lord, thank you for the sweet prayer there. We pray for Ashley. Thank you for Hannah. We pray you will grant to us, Lord, time in your word that we could really sense the power and the beauty of the gospel. And we pray often, as we pray for me, as I teach others, that you, you will disciple me even while I'm up here. Grant to me, O oh God, the words I need to say. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right. We're in the book of Acts. We're in Lystra. Um, and I pray that you will listen in a way that you will insert yourself into this story. We as Christians have a struggle, and the struggle is a struggle of compartmentalization. This means that we have a way of understanding our lives that is not biblical. We have a place for Sunday, and that is beautiful. But there is too much relegation. There's too much compartmentalization. We have this little box. We check it, and then we get on with real life. I pray that as I preach and as I talk, even to you, I'll be talking to myself, and that we will have all of these categories sort of removed from us, these compartments, and we'll begin to see ourselves as owned by God. That every step we take, every, every place we go is under his hand and guidance, and something is always up. I would pray that you would begin, and I would begin to really begin to see that. That's my prayer as we get started. Uh, you remember in the movie, I'm not quoting the book here, those those of you who really listen to stuff carefully, hey, that's not in the that's not in the book. Um, but I don't know. Uh, remember when Sam turns to to Frodo and he stops in the movie, and he is about to step one more step outside of the Shire. Do you remember that? And he says, "Mr. Frodo, if I take one more step, I'll be farthest from the Shire than I've ever been in my whole life." Right? And then F Mr. Frodo. Uh, I don't think he says anything. He just kind of pats him on the back. And it's going to be all right, Sam. Maybe he does say something. So uh, we are called to leave the Shire. And for the Jews who had come to faith in Christ, the Shire was Jerusalem. A place of great familiarity, a place that needs ministry, a place. And then there was a new developing Shire a place that was more cosmopolitan and more, uh, more multi-ethnic, Antioch, 300 miles north. And I'm sure it was a, a very comfortable place. And uh, they had this new fledgling church, and they needed, they needed seasoned elders. They, you had uh, an apostle in Paul the Apostle. Oh, well, let's keep him around for five years. My goodness, wouldn't that be great? No, they, they had, let's leave the Shire mentality. And God's Spirit worked in this church, and it was a mission-minded church, and so they sent some of their best off into the mission field. And so this is the first missionary journey of, of Paul. And he's been commissioned by the church. It's very interesting to watch how central the church is in all this. When you think of missions, you might think of, I don't know, someone just has a dream to go do something, and they kind of do it on their own. Missions is related to the church, 
and the church sends them off, then, then they recognize as they do their journey and they come back, they come back to Antioch of Syria and give a report they were sent by the church. I often, I've often thought about Christian musicians who sort of roam the, the Christian subculture, right? And they're out there playing their songs and stuff. And I actually suggested this to one of them. I said, you know, what would it be like for you to have your lyrics approved by the elders of your church? You're not just sort of you're making up theology on your own and you're just a kind of nice little tune, CDG here, and we got it going on. What would happen if you are an extension of your church? Does that make sense? Right? That is how they think in, in the book of Acts. The church is central to the work of God. Now, today I, wanna, I, wanna, I want you to notice, if you're following from last week, the sermon that Paul preaches, uh, the sermon that Paul preaches uh, in this area uh, we call modern-day Turkey, it's, it, he preaches to Jewish crowds differently than he does to non-Jewish crowds. And we're going to see that today, right? And I want you just to highlight that when we think about evangelism, or the de- even the defense of Christianity, we want to be person-centered. Meaning, we want to be thoughtful, careful, and listening to the kind of way we need to present the gospel without compromising it in a way that they can grasp or understand. So someone who has familiarity with the Bible, you would use the Bible, in a, in a sense, differently to convince them of the story of Christ and someone who has no familiar familiar with the Bible, your starting point may be very different. And we see this in, in the ministry of Jesus. Nicodemus, John chapter 3, uh, a trained Pharisee. And the way Jesus talks to him is different than the way he talks to the woman at the well in John chapter 4. So this is, I just say this to say, when, we advent, when we're venturing into evangelism, we want to be person-centered it starts with listening, listening really, really well. Now, Luke's, it's interesting, Luke is the human author of the book of Acts. And Luke's purpose may very well have been to present a defense for the Apostle Paul, who, by the time this is penned, is in jail awaiting a trial uh, by the Romans. Okay? And this may have been sort of the, the, the briefing notes, the book of Acts, uh, for uh, Paul's defense. Now, why do I say that? Because it may have been an accusation uh, given uh, about Paul that he was a rebel rouser and the creator of riots. He was not a, uh, he was not a safe person to be in Roman in Roman society, right? And we notice that here there's a lot of stir-up and problems, right? That uh, the whole town of Lystra is in a frenzy, as it were. Why? Well, a good thing was done to a, a crippled man, right? So there's just, a t- I tuck that in there for your, your information. Now, again, we are seeing the response of these who live in Lystra, and the crowds have seen what the living God has done through the power, 
granted the Apostle Paul, and they, they don't know how else to interpret this, but to say that the gods, Greek mythology, have come and visited us. And so they're trying to figure out who Barnabas might be. Uh, it's kind of fun to imagine this. Barnabas, did he just look more, uh, author, uh, more of an authority than Paul? Uh, so Barnabas gets the big title, Zeus. Those of you who know Zeus, Zeus is like the chief of all the gods. Like He's the big god. And Hermes is the one who actually inv- originally invents language, and he's the messenger of the gods. He's the deliverer. That's why I believe Hermes is always the one with the winged feet. Is that right? Yeah, he's always the one delivering messages. And, uh, and if there's anything that the gods need to communicate to, to mere mortals, uh, Hermes, is, this is Greek, Hermes is usually the one who delivers it. So, so Paul is the spokesperson, and so they assume, well, this, he must be. And they really believe that. They believe that the gods have become embodied in human flesh, and, uh, and they try to figure out who, who are these gods. And then very quickly, the, uh, the priest of the Temple of Zeus, right? There would be a temple there. And if you travel to modern-day Greece today, some of you have seen this. I've been to, to Corinth and Athens, and some of you as well. You can see that the, the temple to Apollos or the temple to Zeus, you can, these are still there. Um, the, uh, and so Paul and Barnabas, um, this story is, is accounted for us by Luke and, and how they're trying to connect with these who are polytheists. And what does he say? Now, this is a short, a short summary uh, they spent more time here, okay? So we have a short summary of the kinds of ways that Paul would connect with a, a, an audience that has no biblical background whatsoever, right? And so they cry out, and, and first of all, in, in sort of a protest gesture, this is why they tear their garments. Verse 14, they, are, they tear their garments, and it seems like the impression I get is that the crowd is over here at the entrance of the, of the city, and... Paul and Barnabas are over here, and it seems, I get the impression, that they run over and uh, begin to, you know, in a way that gets everyone's attention, and they rip their clothes, and that has multiple uh, interpretations. The, most, the one that seems most reasonable is that's an attention-getting device. It's like having a bullhorn, and it stops the crowd long enough so Paul can start speaking. And his, verse 15, men, why are you doing these things? We also are men of like nature with you, and we bring you good news. That you should turn, he gets to it, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God who made the heaven and earth and the sea and all that is in them. In past generations, he allowed all the nations to walk in their own ways. He's, this is the dramatic moment. This is very important. We're here to present to you a change in history. The living God is no longer letting you go your way. Yet he did not leave himself without witness, for he did good by giving you rains from heaven and fruitful seasons, satisfying your hearts with food and gladness, speak more about this, you have experienced him. You've experienced him. You know of his goodness in a regular way. 
Now, that's a comment about, the, that's, there's many things there. That's for sure a comment about the polytheistic worldview. The polytheistic worldview is a very unsettled one. How do you know there will be rain tomorrow? Have you presented your libation, your offering to the God of, of, of rain? How do you know there is a predictable universe? How do you know? And it's, it's an anxious world, particularly when you learn about these the gods. If you think of your Greek mythology gods or your Roman gods, they're capricious. They fly off the handle. They're like really dysfunctional human beings <laughs> if you really talk about it. Like, what? He did that? And he, what? He, it's kind of a soap opera, as it were, uh, and they are meaning that there's a lot of personal interest in, ha- in the behavior of the gods. And what Paul is arguing, he's arguing many things in these sentences. One is the consistency of life that you've experienced is coming from a universe. Meaning there is a one, there is one way to understand the experience in this world, and it comes from the one true living God. Now, I would just say, just by way of, of an outline, I would like to just cover rather quickly tr- what are we doing when we think about evangelism? What are we doing when we think about defending the faith? We are trust and bridge building. We are connecting with themes of relevance. I'll cover this. And then we're identifying a person's belief position. And then we are arousing interest. Now, let's just sort of think of this as a kind of a workshop on evangelism here. And we're going to talk a little bit about this. And I hope that you will really begin to see, oh, God would be calling me to do, to do that. Now, in the bridge building, in the bridge building, Paul assures them that he is not superior to them. He's not superior to them. He, he, he doesn't take... Uh, just, uh, I have never been misunderstood uh, as a god. <laughs> Hasn't happened yet. Um, uh, but imagine if someone gives you some sort of special title, um, and you sort of might enjoy that for a moment. <laughs> you know, get the respect that goes with that, the power that goes with that, right? And Paul the Apostle just said, No, we are mere mortals with you. We speak not from on high. We speak, we speak with you. We are, we are made of the same nature as you. Okay, just speaks that way. Without any condescension, without any, you know, not being pejorative, just speaks. And, and that is a, that is a, that's a bridge building thing. Okay. And, and if you were encountering someone who sort of maybe... If, they're, if you sense they're sort of discounting you or discounting themselves, let me put it more clearly. If you were sharing your faith and someone is sort of saying, well, you're smarter than me or you know the Bible better than I do or you know, right? What you want to do is in, with real honest humility say, it's only the grace of God that has allowed me to understand some aspects of the Bible, right? But you, you want to, Continue that connection. Hey, I am just stumbling forward in life like you, right? 
I am just stumbling forward in life like you, right? Now, I'll give you an example. Um, like, um, again, if, if, if you, what you want to do is you want to, in absolute honesty, seek a common ground that is founded in humility, okay? Now, as we build trust and as we are building a bridge between a person, we are involved in persuasion. I'm doing it right now. I'm trying to persuade you of something. Now, let's borrow from our handy-dandy notebook, our notebook which is available if you're new with us. We are following this notebook through the book of Acts. There's a study guide. And in the study guide from Redeemer New York, uh, they include the the ways in which a person is persuasive. How does a person persuade another person? Now, this is borrowed from Aristotle, the Greek thinker, and it has held up over the years, and there tends to be three things that are part of persuasion. There has to be content. Uh, there has to be a, a compassion, an understanding, an ability to be empathetic, and there has to be an ethical quality of the speaker, right? So these are terms called the logos, pathos, and ethos. Those are again Greek, Greek ideas. So those are observations from Aristotle. And it's interesting, if you watch this text, I believe you can see these patterns of persuasion in the Apostle Paul. So the rational part is the logos. There has to be content, right? It has to, at some point, make sense. There has to be some sort of sense to it, right? So Paul is here speaking to people who are responding, responding to the excitement of seeing a man healed. And what the Apostle Paul's doing is he's going to bring sense to it. How do I understand this, this event? And he does it in a very interesting way. You've seen the goodness of fruit trees, of wheat, of running water in a stream. You've seen you are surrounded with the goodness of God's love for his creation. That's how he argues, right? You have experienced the consistency of God's care for this world. What's he doing? That's connected to the healing. It's, it's good that crippled people are made well, right? Uh, Non-Christians can acknowledge that. Christians certainly can acknowledge that, right? So the content, the content that the Apostle Paul is seeking to convey to them is consistent, connects with how they're already thinking, and he's bringing, sort of he's bringing in a kind of a new thought. Someone's been healed by the resurrected Jesus. That's a new thought. Someone's been healed, and he is connecting that to knowledge they already have, and that's the logos part of persuasion. In other words, if someone is persuading you and they have good content, they've got your attention, right? Hey, let me, let me know. I'll tell you this is a better car. And Why? Well, and they give you six reasons why this is a better car than that car. That's part of persuasion. And so 
you and I, we have a faith that can be defended. How so? We have the historic record, the testimony, the reliable testimony of Scripture. This isn't sort of private, subjective, well, I just believe in Jesus because he just kind of my little private world. Notice we're in a real town called Lystra. Notice how real all of this is. This is the real world uh, testimony that is connected to the resurrection of Christ. And it's presented here. How do you know the, the scriptures are reliable? Here they are. They are a public record for people to look and for God to use to, to testify to his risen son. So the other aspect of, of bridge building is pathos. And pathos is, again, the, the idea of compassion. And that compassion and passion. Now, someone who rips their clothes off or, or, or in half or something and says, I, you've got to listen to me. I would say that they are persuaded about something, right? You got to have some energy. You, if you're going to try and persuade someone, you, you know about a persuasive salesperson, right? They have a there's a, there's a quality about them that is persistent, and they are pressing in on you because they believe what they're offering is good for you. Hopefully, hopefully they're not deceiving you. The second aspect of persuasion is not only content, but it's pathos. And then the third aspect of it is ethos. This means that the person has, there's a consistency to them. There's a believability about to them, right? There's a believability to them. One time our, our daughter, Amaris, um, now our kids are young adults, so I can tell more stories about them. Um, so uh, I sense that our daughter, Amaris, She's, I don't know, 10 years old or something. I sensed that she didn't fully believe I loved her. I know, that's shocking. So I sat her down and I said, Do, I said, is there some doubt in your heart that your dad doesn't love you? I said, I'm not going anywhere until we figure this out. Because I love you with all my heart. Point is this. If there is some inconsistency in my life, if you, if Dad just is talking words of love, but he's not actually living it out, we've got to have this right. I don't want that Dad to be in this house. And this is why Peter tells his congregation, among the non-believers, do good, do good. And the ethical quality of Christ is going to come through in your actions. Now, Paul and Barnabas are outnumbered. There's just two of them. How can they get a crowd to quiet and listen to this? What's, what's the dynamic of persuasion? Now, we don't have an account here in Lystra of, of conversions happening. But we know that this is a way of speaking persuasively. And their hearts are truly flowing with the grace of God in order to win these folks. It takes time. It takes time to create a kind of openness to you as a person. You see, Christianity really does kind of come 
embodied in you. And yes, there is content to it, but it takes time because they're going to the person you're thinking about or working with or praying for is watching you, and it's going to take time uh, for them to, again, begin ask you questions. Now, the other area is there's a theme of relevance. I'll move this rather quickly. Um, we are we are listening as we encounter the non-believer. We're listening for what they believe, desire, want, and hope. Now, what do these folks in Lystra want? Well, they want they want more of this goodness. They're about to give praise to Zeus and thank God for thank that God and then thank another God, Hermes. They are, the gods have come and given us goodness, right? The non-believer wants goodness. I can't think of anyone, any of them that will be opposed to it, right? This is an entry point for us to begin a dialogue about the nature of goodness. Why is good better than evil? Can you imagine having a conversation with someone like that? Actually, goodness is a quality that people have a desire. Uh, Goodness, beauty, justice. Can you think of some other things, areas? How about human rights, right? Well, I'll just tell you, the, the Roman Caesars never came up with that concept. They weren't walking around the palace thinking, you know what I think our, 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 this, this empire needs? All these people need rights. Uh, in fact, they all need to, right? And, and the government needs to be put in check, right? That is a biblical Judeo-Christian idea. People are made in the image of God. And apart from the government, they have rights. That make sense? Rights to what? Well, Jefferson put it this way, life, liberty, and what? The pursuit of happiness. Well, he kind of tossed that one in there. I'm not sure about that one. So, the theme of relevance is really important as you, and again, I want you to think, I'm going to be a redeemer, excuse me, I'm going to be an instrument in my redeemer's hand, I'm going to be listening carefully for points of re- relevance. How will this impact this person? So, for instance, let's say you're sitting next to someone on a plane and a very difficult subject comes up, very awful subject comes up about men mistreating women. All right? Is that a point of relevance? You say, well, they... All right, and then you begin to talk this way. You begin to say, "Yeah, I don't. That's terrible. That's awful." Yeah, and the other person next to you, seat twenty-six B. Yeah, that's that's awful. I hate that. Men are terrible. And uh, yeah, it's awful. Well, do you think men should not abuse women? Um, is that just a uh, United States thing, or is that something in Thailand as well? Well, yeah, that Thailand as well. Okay, Denmark as well. Yeah, Denmark. Yeah. So, in other words, we bumped into a universal truth. Does that make sense? Right. You've bumped into someone who is tapping into the 
a sense of justice, where does this sense of justice come from? It comes from within them. They've been made in the image of God. It leaks out of them. Every person you see who's angry about an injustice is in some way connecting, now they're not, not perfectly, connecting to the, to the way they've been made. You see? And so we have dozens of points of relevance that we can begin to see, oh, this person's passionate about this. This person's uh, pursuing this, okay? And so what the Apostle Paul is connecting to is the desire for goodness and consistency in the experience of goodness. And so Paul does this. The relevant point is how God is acting always through fruit trees and through providing rivers of water and wheat fields. God is providing the world you live in and the world you want that's inside you is corresponding to the world you desire out there. See? Make sense? Christianity is not a round peg trying to fit into a square a whole, meaning what? That the Christianity, what we're talking about is the desires that people have, the wants and hopes people have, resonate with this book. And I don't know if you've ever been to, like, a, uh, bookstores are not around very much anymore, uh, but uh, the, the, the religious section of a bookstore it's kind of this quirky place, right? Sometimes I gravitate over there and see what's popular. And uh, there's some of the quirky quirky books because there are these nice esoteric little inspirational books, you know? And But they're not, they're not talking about real towns like Lystra. They're not talking about real places. It's up in the clouds. And the, the, the sort of imaginary things that are somehow true, right? What I'm saying is this. The Bible presents to us a resonance between the image of God in us and what it is what it is presenting to us. The things that we want and desire and and long for in this world are actually reflected in the God who is revealing himself in Scripture. Themes of relevance. Now we identify the belief position. We identify the belief position. This means where is the person, where is the person camping in their view of God? Where is the person saying, this I believe is true, right? This I believe is true. And so when we're identifying their belief position, we are listening for what they have, where they have come to a conclusion, they will say something like, I believe God is. I believe God is, right? Or they'll say something about human nature or the moral order or, or what has meaning for them, right? And what we do is we point out the longing that's there. We point out the desire that's there. But we also point out how the gospel addresses that issue. And so we point out their belief position and we point out where the gospel addresses that position. 
And then fourthly, we are arousing interest. We are arousing interest. This means that even in our text here, Paul doesn't say everything about God's goodness in nature, but he says enough. And he, he says something that's provocative, that gets their attention, and, and sets up further conversation. We desire to leave the non-believer with a new way of understanding life. We want them to understand that there is a plausible way to grasp what the scriptures say. There's a way of framing life that makes more sense and is more, and is more connected to the, who they are as a person. This leaves the non-believer with a new awareness that the very basis of their thinking and their desires and their wants and hopes is almost identical to how the Christian thinks. They are thinking like a Christian, but they may have a hard time admitting that, meaning this. We, as the believer, we want a world that is better, don't we? Yes. We want a world that is consistent. Yes. We want evil to be vanquished. Yes. Right? Uh, we would like uh, women to be respected all around the world in every culture. Yes. Now, all those categories I just said, a non-believer can agree with. Does that make sense? We, as those who are emissaries of Christ, we understand what's going on under the hood of the car. We've listened like a mechanic and listened and we hear something and we know what is going on under the hood and we know how to address it. Now let me, let me appeal to you. The defense of scripture, the defense of Christianity is called apologetics. It's a great place to study the presentation of the gospel is called evangelism. And those are both vitally important areas of study. And then one key takeaway, the person-centered nature of what's going on. Think of this. This is a man highly trained in the Bible. It's not enough to, it would be not overstating it that he is a genius at this stage in his life of, of understanding how to preach. And yet he is very tender and careful with these who have no understanding. And he's seeking to build a bridge with them, with the goodness of God and God's grace toward them through common grace in order to win them as a stranger in their city. If we take away nothing else, Think of this. Think of the compassion and the love and the patience of one who left the Shire in order to do God's will. Let's pray for that boldness. I'm going to pray now, and then Brandon will come up and lead us. Our Father, we thank you for persuading us. We who more than stubborn, 
Thank you for pressing in and converting us and changing us. Thank you, O Father. We now come to the supper out of our need for your grace. In Christ's name we pray, amen.